I'm so sad that I'm not seeing you face to face anymore. I know. You're we had a great so time in Phoenix. Far away. Doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore? I've it grown accustomed <laughs> to your face. Okay, that's that's a, that's one that, that works too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, it's, it's been a few because we did a double whammy that week. We did. And now we're back to I'm in my office. You're in whatever room you record in. I'm in the rectory. I'm in my living room. Yep. Yeah. We're back at it. Yeah. So no, that was a really fun week. It was great to meet a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> like so, uh, I recognize maybe for next time it'd be nice to do like a podcast meetup of some sort. Because yeah. I the one thing I felt bad about like people are like oh can we hang out with you and I'm like I, and then like the schedule got busy and busier than I expected it to. Right. And I wasn't feeling great one night either. And so I felt bad because like some people are like, oh, yeah, I'll try and make it work. And it just didn't work out. So I'm sorry, folks. But uh, it was so great to see all y'all and to meet all y'all and to hear from you. And I mean, the highlight for me, I don't know what you, was mm-hmm. the singing of the Summa. Oh, yes. The live singing of the Summa was uh, people were enthusiastic. I mean, we had our boys. The children. Patrick and Ethan. Yes. Standing, mm-hmm. singing, singing it. And just what a joy to meet those guys oh absolutely so that's my i haven't met pat yet i we, we text all the time about bonaventure but <laughs> yeah so but yeah that was fun but i got i got um some other really cool news uh while just after sls actually um as people know we did our vatican two podcast and i said oh yeah i'm thinking about doing this as like a book of some sort one day right and uh it was we had some conversations that took a bit longer than i expected it was actually god's providence but I have signed a contract with our Sunday visitor. And this means that I am now going to be the author of a book wow. on Vatican on Vatican II. Now you have to jack up your speaking prices. <laughs> Wait, we can charge to speak? I mean, you could. It'd be weird to do as a priest, but I think it some people be. do. But no, this is super cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm like genuinely excited for you to write this yeah. and for me to read it. Um, and it's good. It's good. And I, I like what you're doing because a book on Vatican II that is not for theologians, like if you've never read any theology, read a book, learn about Vatican II, there you go. And it's, I think it's really needed. I think you're going to do a good job. So I'm excited awesome. for it. Thank you. And so for those now, you're going to have to wait a bit. Um, we, the, they want to release it in actually 2022 kind of to coincide with the 60th anniversary of the start of the council, which there makes you. sense. Yeah, Good yeah. marketing opportunity. But yeah, so that's some uh, really kind of new and cool news on my front. And the other kind of neat thing is, so I'm, I, I'm doing um, this intro to theology class at our cathedral. Right. Once a month, right? And we just let people sign up. We actually had to cap it. We actually had a waiting list now. We had to cap it at 80 people. That's amazing which is like crazy. I'm kind of in shock still that this many people want to come and listen to <laughs> I me. bet they can't wait to <laughs> learn. Exactly. I mean, I'll just play that at the beginning. I'll just play the first bit of expectations <laughs> bumper at the beginning of every episode. It's also going to be an opportunity to spread the podcast love even more because I bet you some of these people don't know about the podcast. Oh, yeah. So, but yeah, it depends, so it depends are, on how good you uh, teach because if you drop the ball, they're not going to listen to our podcast. So no pressure. No pressure at all. Yeah, so it's an intro to theology class. It's five sessions, uh, Friday nights and Saturday mornings for five months, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm just prepping the lectures and getting it together, and it's going to be. I'm looking forward to it. This is this is my wheelhouse. So yeah, um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's what's going on in my life. But uh, welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. And I'm Father Anthony. How are you doing, Father Anthony? Uh good. Nothing really going on. Just Nothing being at all. Uh, just being at all. cool and normal and chill, chill. like yeah. always. Yeah. Yeah, no controversies or anything. None whatsoever. No. No. It's like so you, you have nothing just, to say. Do you just want to get into the Summa Theologica then? <laughs> okay, okay. So the people want to know. Okay. So how should I start? Okay, let's just do the whole thing. Whole thing. It's yeah, Sunday. Just, just go for it. It's, it's a lovely yeah. Sunday. I had two masses. I was hanging out with the youth group. A lot of wonderful interactions with parishioners. Just a good Sunday to be a priest. Yep. And then um, I'm seeing I'm seeing this like particular account that's tweeting a lot of anti-Semitic stuff. And this person's been like doing this kind of thing for a while now. Mm-hmm. And the account is just like full of just vitriol and hate. And it's really a poisoning of the gospel. 
Yeah. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot because a lot of people, good people, will try to argue with these people who run these accounts and it never works, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm all about talking and speaking in a loving way with people who have wrong views, people who are sinners. Like that's literally my job. I do that every day. Mm-hmm. But on this platform, you're doing it with an audience. And so there can't be an authentic, like you can't, it's hard to repent when everyone's watching you, right? And when you have like a fan base that is feeding into the bad things you're doing. So more and more I've been thinking about, you know what, we just need to cut this off. And these people, if they really want to tweet all these terrible things, they can tweet it into a vacuum and they can tweet it to each other and they can feed on their own hate. And then hopefully one day they'll realize how empty they are and turn back to Christ and the actual gospel. Right. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm done with this. So I go to my Google extension, and it's called blockchain. And what blockchain does is that it will block everyone who follows a particular account, right? And I figured if I do this, I may lose some followers, right? Because maybe some people innocently follow this account because they don't check their Twitter stuff, and they don't realize they just follow anyone who's Catholic or whatever. But you know what? It's okay if that happens because Twitter isn't essential for salvation, and we'll just move on with our lives. Well, to my great surprise, Father Harrison, I ended up blocking like 2,000 of my own followers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which is a lot. I was like, I noticed the drop. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, oh. I got is... a chance to catch up now. Yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> ooh, okay. But uh, what began to really bother me was all the reactions from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people taking it very personally. Uh, and like positive, like there are two two like polar opposites. Some people saying like, "Oh, how are we ever going to hear the word of God if Father Anthony isn't on Twitter?" I'm like, "Oh, that's weird and unhealthy. Like, I'm just one priest with a Twitter account. Like, that's mm-hmm. a weird attachment." And other people saying, "This is a terrible priest, and he's yeah. unjust, and he should be more patient with people, and he's 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 caught up in his own clout." I'm like, "That's also really weird and unhealthy." <laughs> and I. I like we about, actually have clout. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a very small little twi- Twitter world, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, we can we can shake things up with our accounts and everything. But the thing is, I've been thinking about this more and more for the past few months. When I was on break uh, during Advent, not uh, posting anything on Twitter, I really didn't miss it. Like, I missed mm-hmm. my, my friends. You know, I missed the priests that I talked to and everything. But I didn't really miss it so much. I've been thinking more and more, like, I have been ordained for three years, Mm-hmm. I'm a parochial vicar of the Diocese of Pittsburgh mm-hmm. in like Western PA. Mm-hmm. I haven't published any books. I am not a bishop. I don't need an account with 20,000 followers. Mm-hmm. Like if you didn't buy any of the other stuff I said, for me, I realized, you know what? This isn't good for me either. Um, and it's tough. It's tough because I'm very open and honest with who I am, my personality on the website. But then that gives 20,000 opportunities for people to misinterpret me as well. Mm-hmm. And it just, that kind of platform with what I do, I didn't want to do it anymore. So I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I don't want to make a big going away speech because that kind of plays into the, like the middle school drama of everything. And it's like me acting like I'm a big deal. I, I, this has always bothered me. So I'm like, you mm-hmm. know what? We're done. So I deleted my account. Wow. And that's what happened. And it's fine. It's good. So we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll, um, one thing I've been thinking about is that maybe the account will stay open, but I'll unfollow everybody, unblock everybody, and just retweet clerically speaking stuff. Maybe I'll do that. There won't be like an account that I use anymore, but we'll right. see. Um, and then maybe in a little while, I'll just do a little locked account to talk with uh, some people, but it's not going to be a thing. I've never mm-hmm. seen Twitter as my ministry. I'm a mm-hmm. priest anywhere I go, so I'm a priest on Twitter as well, but mm-hmm. uh, I just see a lot of unhealthiness in celebrity attachment to priests, good and bad, right. or positive and negative. I shouldn't say good and bad. I think it's all bad, but positive and negative, and uh, I'm done, and it's fine. It's Everything's going to be okay. So this is our last episode then. No, I'm kidding. Right. Kidding. No, we're still going to do the podcast. Of course, we're still going to do the podcast. Of course. And the thing about the podcast is it's a better medium to express myself because you hear right. the voices. We have time to yeah. go into stuff. You have more than um, 280 characters. Right. Exactly. So, and we talked all about a lot about this when we were in Notre Dame and the yeah. positives and negatives of what social media are. But I think because just for all those reasons. And, and, and we all yeah. have, and we all approach it differently, right? Absolutely. Like we, um, not everyone's going to people are going to struggle differently with social media in different ways. Like, yep. um, and like for me, it's never, I don't know. 
I don't have the same struggles with it per se, and that's fine. Yeah. It's totally cool. And it's like, I'm like, whatever. But I think it's also about recognizing it's like, yeah, you're doing this really in the end for your own good and the good of your own priesthood. Exactly. Right. And that also shows a detachment because really in the end, what's most important for us is the ministry we do locally, right? Like the concrete ministry we are in is the most important thing that we can do. Yeah. Um, even even greater than our podcast, as much as we love doing our podcast, right? Yeah, um, I wasn't ordained to do a podcast. I wasn't ordained yeah. to be on Twitter. I'm ordained yeah. right now to be a priest in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, and that's yeah. what I love. And this stuff yeah. is, is fun and good, but it's just tough. I will say yeah. this. I will say this. If you did take it personally, and if somehow I hurt you by blocking you, I'm sorry. I didn't want to do that. Um, that's, that's my fault, and I am sorry for that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Now... Is blockchaining a mortal or venial sin? Is in this case, <laughs> in this case, I'm gonna say it's not a sin at all. Let's just just let's just play hypothetical. Okay. Is it mortal or venial? Um, let's see. I it's not grave matter because I don't think it's grave matter. Right. Um, that's interesting. So so then so then would you need to bring this to confession? Uh, no. Well, you're, we're assuming it's a sin, and I'm totally pushing back against that. It's definitely not to, like... To you're not, ruining my transition, to Father read, Anthony. Okay, like, to read... I'm sorry, I'm just doing this now. So, like, <laughs> to tell somebody, I can't read your tweets and you can't read my tweets is not a sin. Okay. That's fine. So there. But we're going to talk about sin and confession in the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. We talk about I was trying to lead you in. I know, but then I was I... trying. I was like, I gotta, I gotta need. I, I knew exactly what you're gonna do for banter. I was like, I gotta, I got a good way to kind of transition into this. And you ruined it for me. I'm you a ruined terrible it. podcaster. I knew you're trying to follow our new pot, our new format for transitioning. And I you know. Ruin it. Mm-mm. Not gonna you make jerk. it easy. <laughs> so the Summa Theologica with St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology and the Summa Tweetologica are things that we found interesting on Twitter. And the first one goes to uh, Father Shrink. Uh, Father A. Shrank at Father AJDS. You don't need to make a valid and good confession. You do need to maybe grow in virtue and avoid worse sins in the future. If you don't know whether a sin is venial or mortal, err on the side of caution. And he's quote tweeting about uh, a question someone has about whether we need to confess venial sins, right? And I think this is an important thing because it's kind of like a two-edged sword with confession with this, right? Because so for oh, venial so can, sins, can we do a quick timeout? So the person yeah. asked if we need to confess venial sins, right? And Father Shrank said no, not to make a valid confession. Uh, and then, but you do need to maybe grow in virtue and avoid worse sins. If you don't know whether a sin is venial or mortal, err on the side of caution and just confess mm-hmm. it. So yeah. okay, so yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So um, this is a very interesting question because, like, so just so people know, venial sin is always forgiven at like mass for example that mm-hmm. it is always forgiven because it's not something that um is detaching us from god and it's something and the grace of the mass forgives it mortal sins require confession right uh, so it's like that's two at source so yeah it's it's forgiven all the time and yet at the same time i think the, the church does even kind of encourage frequent confession i think or at mm-hmm. least saints have suggested this at the very least saints often go to confession frequently um, and but we'll know that like if they're a saint going to confession, there's probably not mortal sin there. Right, it's probably just venial sin. So then the the question becomes, well, why do I need to bring that to confession if it's forgiven in the mass? Mm-hmm. But I think the point of this is, it's I would call it well, there's still grace at work there in absolution in the sacrament of confession. It does forgive your sins if you don't get to mass and you go to confession. Um, that forgives your venial sins. 
in confession, but also you don't need to confess them at, at confession, but you, but they can help you grow in holiness. So in a way, bringing venial sins, like Father Shrank says, on the one hand, bring us into a, help us to avoid going deeper because like venial sins are like the fraying of a rope. Mm-hmm. They can weaken our, our relationship. They don't cut it off. But if we let them get a hold of us, they can lead us to serious sin. So bringing that to confession. And so it becomes, in a way, a small-scale place of a little bit of spiritual direction where I recognize there are spiritual sins in my life that I'm holding on to, that I'm giving into too often, so that I can grow away from them and the priest can help me grow away from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll there's some things going on here because I do think there is a lack of understanding and genuine belief that the mass forgives venial Mm -hmm. sins. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a temptation for zealous people to kind of fall into a little bit of scrupulosity um, in that they feel like as soon as they commit any kind of sin, it's mortal. And then they Mm -hmm. keep themselves from mass and sort of thing. And we'll talk about that next episode Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because I want to dive deeper into what mortal and venial sin are a little bit. But uh, so there is that. I do think we need to more reemphasize that um, the Eucharist and the mass, these are healing things that are given to us. Right. But I I mean, I will always confess venial sins. And the reason why I'll do that is um, it's a good spiritual practice because saying your sins out loud, openly and honestly in the confessional with that special sacramental presence of Christ in the priest, it Mm -hmm. brings them out into the light in a way that privately confessing them doesn't. Um, So it by doing that, they kind of lose more of their power because a lot of times venial sins, these are symptoms of a lack of virtue in our life. They're symptoms of a lack of love in our life. And mm-hmm. so you bring them out so you can better diagnose the problem like in your own soul. And by right. doing that, it helps you to convert more and more to avoid them in the future. Mm-hmm. And there is grace in the sacrament that helps you to avoid them in the future as mm-hmm. well. So yeah. I think it's important not to agonize over each and every sin. It's important right. to be sorry for each and every sin, not to agonize over it. And I think bringing them up is good. Though yeah. sometimes people do feel forced to like pad out their confession with like yeah. extra venial sins. Like, I don't know if I, if I've said enough sins to father, I better say a few more to make it sound like I know I'm doing. No, don't do that. Just confess yeah. honestly. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. you know, if you, if you're all you're aware of is, you know, I lied a few times in the last month. That's all you need to confess. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't sit there agonizing like, oh wait, is there more stuff? Cause then you're also stealing time from other people in the line. Right. Right. And know that if, if you forgot it, it's probably not serious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Not always, but there's a good chance that if you're a devout faithful Catholic and you forgot a sin, it's probably not serious. And, God will bring it back to your heart if he wants you to work on it. Right. And yeah. also, all the sins that we forget, as long as we're confessing honestly, um, yeah. they're forgiven too. They're forgiven, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Word. What do you got? Oh, let's let's get into this, because this is terribly exciting. Mm. This is from Mark Brimley, at mm-hmm. M.A. Brimley. Story broke so I can say, Ignatius Press is publishing a new book by Pope Emeritus Benedict and Cardinal Robert Seurat. The title, From the Depths of Our Hearts priesthood, celibacy, and the crisis of the Catholic Church. Available for pre-order tomorrow, January 13th, ships February 2nd. (laughs) (laughs) That was the worst sound we've ever recorded on this podcast. Maybe second worst. No, there is a worse sound. The worst sound, I think, was when Nick would put in that uh, sound of, uh, let's just say, running water when you went to take a bathroom break that one time. (laughs) I think he did that twice. Uh, but anyway. Anyways. Uh, yeah. So Benedict and Cardinal Seurat, they are coming out with a book on celibacy and the crisis of the church. And so before we get into controversies, yep. for us, because we're cool and normal and chill, it's like, oh, look at these brilliant minds talking about something we care about. We're excited to read their book. Isn't that what your reaction basically is if you're cool and normal and chill? And you scream like I just did. What's that? And you oh, scream oh, you like scream. I just did. You, you right? fangirl over it. <laughs> yes, you fangirl over it, right? I mean, yeah. And that is a low-key actual reaction. I didn't want to blow people's speakers. Right. But yeah, so there's that. So it's exciting. Um, it'll be interesting. I'm interested in comparing what's in the book to what um, that letter that uh, Pope Benedict uh, put mm-hmm. out um, a few months ago and everything. Right. And it'll be probably really good. Yeah. But the thing is, people are losing their dang minds 
because they it's see ridiculous. this thing as somehow undermining Pope Francis. Right. And I will say this about Pope Francis's uh, pontificate. No matter what side of the quote-unquote political spectrum you find yourself on, one of the charisms of Pope Francis is that he openly reveals people's hearts to the world. Yeah. He, he, what he's done is he's revealed quite deeply what is your real theology of the church? Yeah. What do you really believe? What do you really right. trust? You know, what do you actually care about? He has this knack of bringing all this stuff into light, whether you're on the right side or the left side. Mm-hmm. I find it utterly fascinating because a lot of people right now are like, somehow Pope Benedict's undermining Francis because what Francis really wants to do is change celibacy. And if you've read, like, there are a few things that Francis is pretty strong on. One of them is celibacy. Yeah. Uh, another one is abortion. Mm-hmm. Like, these big moral topics, he's not all about changing. He'll let people right. talk about it. It's like, go ahead, go ahead, talk about it. And the reason why I think he's so confident in letting people talk about it is because he knows it's not going to change. Right. So, yeah. and Or there's people are saying that it's interrupting the binding synodal process of discussion. I'm like, no, they're entering the discussion. Right. Which is what he wanted. Yeah. Um, I am obviously excited because I am a Ratzinger stan boy. Mm-hmm. Um, I will always stand Ratzinger. I, and I'm, I, this has always been my secret hope of mine that I, I would, I'd hope that's, Obviously, because he's got these notes and stuff, there will be post-mortem writings that will be released after he dies. Yep. Because he had these notes just hanging around. Yeah. So it gets me excited on a couple fronts that there's going to be stuff to publish. But it also, I, I, I miss I miss his teaching because I just love his teaching so much, right? There was something unique about the way he taught. So I'm just mm-hmm. excited to hear what he has to say, especially because, like, yeah, for you and me, this is our identity as priests, and yeah. I'm intrigued to see how he he sees the issue around priesthood and celibacy today. The reactions I also found so now um, since yesterday's news, um, further developments came around. Right then, there was the um, there was the claim that he didn't want this published. That Benedict didn't. Who right. Benedict or Francis? Benedict. Probably right. okay. Okay. And then Cardinal Seurat released letters saying, um, no, actually, he said, I could publish these things. Mm-hmm. And now today's news was that Archbishop Ganswing said that he didn't want to be known as a co-author of the book. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's different. It's like, but he still wants it published, folks. Like, right. Like, there's this reaction. So the whole thing has revealed to me, though, A, if people fear that this is undermining Francis some way, then those who are very, um, what I want to call pro a characterization of Francis mm-hmm. that they have as some like liberal changing Pope, um, he sure looks impotent in his pontifical power if a small treatise by Benedict somehow is undermining his agenda. Right. So some words from a, 93-year-old German theologian are causing all this fear and negative reaction. Secondly, why didn't they have the same reaction to like when Cardinal Willette released his book on celibacy, which mm-hmm. argued for the exact same thing that I think Sarah and Benedict will be arguing for? Um, what is it about Benedict himself that strikes fear in these people? And I find the whole... Like it shows to me, like what, what the whole situation shows me, and it's what I'm becoming increasingly convinced of, is that we do we have not taken these care these people as who they are, but have put them with these deep ideological lenses to to we force them into like an ideological mold, right? And on on both sides, and neither. And neither side has taken the the figures themselves seriously, mm-hmm. and I think that does a great disservice to the church. And when we are arguing this way in the church, we are also not showing proper humility and deference to the Holy Father Himself. And we gotta like we gotta change this. We gotta change this. It's a letter from a Pope Emeritus. It's not a binding magisterial statement. He has no magisterial authority anymore, except as a member of the College of Bishops. Um. This is 
it's a letter. Like, okay. Let's chill. But I say, so I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. But I also think it's important to just vocalize the fact that the church is in weird territory now, mm-hmm. right? Having a pope and a pope emeritus is odd. And so all this stuff is kind of new. And if you were to ask me, like, Father Anthony, do you feel like Pope Benedict should publish while he's Pope Emeritus? I would probably say no. You know, I would hope that he'd be writing. And I think just mm-hmm. for, for smooth transition and stuff, um, to take a step back, you know, that's what I would say. But the fact yeah. that I can get a little writing by Pope Benedict as a treat, I'm totally happy with, right? So right. I, I kind of get the point of, hey, this is an interesting time in the church. We need to be careful how we do things. I think that's a valid concern. But mm-hmm. I think the real concern isn't that. I think the real concern mm-hmm. are people who have formed both Benedict and Francis in their own image and are mm-hmm. freaking out about their own personal agendas. I think that's where all the the anger and panic is coming from. And this um, is where the, the this is where the revelation element happens, right? It's, yep. it's revealing when essentially their idols are going to be destroyed, and when idols are being destroyed, we kick and scream, mm-hmm. and that's what's happening. Yes, I agree. And I'm just like, I don't know, I'm just done with it. I'm just done with the ideology element of it all. I'm like, we need to have humility. And it's also like Ratzinger is is one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, and that deserves a humility to listen to. Absolutely. If it's truth, and if his, argu- I mean, if his argument's bad, then we debate that. But the fact he's saying something is not a bad thing. And it's like, you think... Francis doesn't know? <laughs> he definitely does. Francis is way more he chill knew. than than a lot of his supporters are. And, and I'm like the I mean the Vatican News actually released a very strong support of the book. There you go. So like we got to we got to chill. We got to chill. All right, wow, we're going along with Suma. Uh All right. Um from at check underscore news. It's a local news station here on Vancouver Island. Megan, Duchess of Sussex, reportedly returning to Greater Victoria. Now, there's been some major, major hype around them coming to Canada. Who? I wish I could. I wish. I wish that was the case, Father Anthony. (laughs) Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel. Prince? Prince, what is this? I, these are very foreign concepts to me. Unless you're speaking about somehow about uh, princes senators of the church. Uh, other than that, no, 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 no. I'm a, yeah, I'm an American. So this whole thing about like the royal family causing a hoopla, I'm like, oh, isn't that adorable? Aren't I have a beef. So yeah. I have a beef with Ed Condon. You have a beef with the great Ed Condon? Not so great in my eyes anymore. Well, this is going to be a problem because Ed is always right. So, no, he's what, not. Is, what is what is what is going on, Harrison? He Pour wrote your an heart. article. He wrote an article in the Spectator arguing that Harry should become the Governor General of Canada. Now, for those Americans who are listening, the Governor General is kind of like the the Queen's representative and signs off on every bill that goes through Parliament. Uh, so they are required constitutionally in our laws so that we can have a constitutional government. Uh, in fact, like when a Parliament dissolves, it is an act of the Governor, not of parliament it's so he made this argument about why harry should be governor general and Mm -hmm. it took off it took off (laughs) i don't care but here's the worst part of it all they're coming they're in my diocese oh you can evangelize them so here's the thing yeah this is why i'm okay with this in the end if harry really wants to leave the whole royal lineage thing yeah He's got a very easy way to do this. It's called becoming a Catholic. Dun, 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 dun. Because in British law, if a if someone becomes a Catholic, they um, they revoke their right of succession. Heck yeah! And so he, he wants his easy way out, buddy. There you the go. The Roman Catholic Church is happy. Harry, Prince Harry, I know you listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. I know you're a secret listener. So this is my plea to you. Stop in Port Alberni because you'll probably go to Tofino a lot. Come say hi. We'll have a coffee. We'll chill. We'll be normal. <laughs> and I will tell you about the great truth and freedom that comes from being a Roman Catholic. I love it. Everyone's becoming Catholic in 2020. All so, right. Yeah. This one right. is from Edith at Catholica Edith. This account is 
pro-Pope, pro-Benedict XVI, pro-Cardinal Seurat, pro-Sharapa, pro-Mass, pro-Pineapple on Pizza. All of these are equivalent, comma, right, question mark. It was such a good list. Why did you have to... This list is exactly like Pineapple Pizza. Because it's like you're listing the ingredients. <laughs> Dough, good. Sauce, good. Cheese, Cheese good. good. Like pepperoni, good. And at the end, you ruined the pizza like you ruined your list with pineapple. Yes, amen. Good, you uh, said it. The, 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 uh, this is, once once again, this is principle. Uh, this principle I mean, we have. That the I was corruption... Going to say- that she ruined the list by putting pro Sharapa. No, 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 no. We this is obviously because like I know, I know. It's I'm obviously a pro Nick Sharapa thing because if it was pro oh, Anthony Sharapa, it would be you know Father Sharapa, right? Yes, um, that's true. This is true. You're right. But this is once again exemplifies this theological principle that the corruption of the best is the worst. The greater <laughs> something is, when that becomes twisted, it becomes diabolical. And you've done it with pizza, and you've done it with this list, and we forgive you, and we love you, Edith, but, like, you've got some praying to do, and that's all I have to say. Let's switch that up. <laughs> oh, oh, you're going you're gonna to push back on me? Okay, what is it? What is it? What do you have to say? Instead of making things worse, let's talk about making things better. Going from a, a, a basic truth and deepening that truth. Let's talk about Protestantism. Oh, okay. It was a segue. I thought you were going to disagree with me. Into the presbyteral exhortations. <laughs> and now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh. It's the best part. Yes, quite. Yes, right. No, no. You, your, 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 your rant was perfect. I was going to give a similar rant. So you, you, you. I we are, we it. are of one mind because and one heart on this. I didn't because if I added to it, it would have ruined it, and it would have become a great bat, a great evil. Right there, so, you go. You know, I, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening, man. Also, if like uh, you get points for effort. The effort you put into that transition was, I could see it on your face as the wheels were turning. And I know, I'm like, trying how to- am I going to make this do fast off the top of my head? I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's okay. We're still working at this, folks. We're still working at this. And I know deep down, you love the bad transitions. Yeah, they do. You love them. It's like it's like when people love pineapple on pizza. You, Ugh. It's so bad, and yet for some reason, you think this is good. <laughs> All right. All right. What are we talking um, about? So we're going to talk about Protestantism today. And so um, you, 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 there's been a clip that's been making the rounds on social media mm-hmm. and, make, and splashing waves in Protestant circles. And I had heard about this person a little bit before from Protestant friends. But so I saw, and so I saw this video. So this is um, a video of Francis Chan who is an evangelical pastor in the States and uh, quite well-known in uh, in Protestant circles. He's kind of, in a way, like, in terms of, like, how well-known he is, I'm not saying they're of the same intellectual status, but it's kind of like Newman was known in, in Anglican circles back in the day. Like, this guy is a big deal. Yeah. And he had a sermon on communion that was amazing and i encourage you to google the the whole thing it's on youtube it's like it's like sermon from december 15th francis chan or just put francis chan communion and it'll be one of the first youtube videos that pops up it's it's hit it's caused some waves and so before we talk about it i just thought we should play a little little clip so here's maybe a little one or two minute segment from his sermon again i'm not making any like grand statements i'm just saying i some of this stuff i didn't know I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized a thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. I didn't know that. I thought, wow, well, that's something to consider. and, and I, while I won't make a strong statement, I will make a statement about this. 
it was at that same time that for the first time someone put a pulpit in the front of the gathering because before that it was always the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gatherings for 1500 years it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church it was the body and blood of Christ and even the leaders just saw themselves as partakers and oh man we're not worthy we're not worthy we're not worthy I say that because the church is more divided than any time in history what does this book tell us clearly that he does not want any divisions in his church and for a thousand years there was just one church Did you know that we're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now but for the first thousand years it was just one so I was struck by this video yeah first I, I mean you've seen it right I did see it yeah yeah first thing was he is a good preacher he really is I was I was actually like I need to watch more of his stuff. Like now, granted, he's given forty five minutes to preach, and if I was given forty five minutes to preach, I could develop a point as well as he did. Mm-hmm. Right? He's 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 repeating himself, but he also spoke with a theological depth and a preaching simplicity that is rare. As right. he's preaching, I'm like, oh man. That is some deep theology right there. Like, oh, wow, you're connecting communion in the church and so on and so forth. And I was just like, wow, like this is this is good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. the other two things that struck me was uh, how natural his preaching was. Yeah. Like you felt like he was just talking to you, right? And the, and the other thing is in the homily or in the, in the sermon, in his preaching, he um, mentioned a few of the people who were in the congregation as well. And you could tell there's a deep, like, relationship and love with his people as he was preaching. Yeah. And, like, that was really beautiful to see as well. So, yeah, I was, I was impressed with just his, his style. So I looked up a few other things. He, uh, everyone says, do you ever get the sense that he's always on the verge of crying when he preaches? Yeah, there's a lot of passion. <laughs> there's a lot of passion there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a man who sincerely loves Jesus as, and is sincerely looking after the truth. And I appreciated his honesty, too. Because the, for, so if you haven't heard it or seen the video yet, essentially it's a reflection on Acts 2.42, right? Where it mm-hmm. says, and the disciples devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to prayer, and to communion, right? And he mentions how he was always struck by that phrase, that they were devoted to communion or to the breaking of bread. He, he, could, he said, I, as a Protestant, I could never understand this. Right. And then he starts going into kind of a history of Christianity and, the, and and how he starts going into the church fathers. The second he started going to the church fathers, I said to myself, he's gone. Yep. It's over. He's going to become Catholic. He has to. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, it's the only option now because not only that, then he starts talking about how there was only one church at the beginning. <laughs> I'm like, and that yeah, this buddy, division is going. not natural. Yeah, buddy. And that communion <laughs> is the principle of unity in the church. I'm like, yeah, man, this is all Catholic and this theology. Was, this was the huge thing. This is a huge thing. And it was beautiful to see someone discover it on their own, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of these things that we kind of take for granted because we've kind of either grown up in it or studied it for a long time. But to see him discover it and how excited he was to share it was really beautiful. Yeah. But, like, that was the underlying principle of his talk. Because um, he did talk about how there's, like, over 30,000 denominations now. Yeah. And how... He was like hitting his Bible, saying that like this book tells us that we're meant to be one. Yeah. So tying in that act of communion and the uh, the the fact and the celebration and the devotion to communion, that being the principle of unity for the church, I was like, yeah, yeah, man, you get it, you get it. But here's the other thing that struck me, and this is kind of what I want to really kind of talk about today. Did you notice? how he talked about Christian history. Uh, what do you mean? How he never knew it. 
Oh yeah, he said he never knew that like there was one church for at least a thousand years, and and then I think he, he made like an, an allusion to the that first schism with the East and the West, yeah. um, and like for he said for fifteen hundred years, like communion was at the center basically, and yeah. he didn't know that, and I was like, really? Okay. So this is what kind of got me interested, and I thought, well, maybe we can have a little kind of study or talk about this. Um, he mentions, yeah, that. There was one church. He didn't know this. He essentially, all he knew was the last 500 years of Christian history. Right. He knows his Bible. He knows his Christian history from the last 500 years since the Reformation. He knows nothing. He knew nothing about in between. But this is the weird thing is I was talking to some Protestant friends about this and, or sorry, some, some converts who were Protestant about this. They said, no, it's the same thing for me. I'm like, what? Oh yeah, no, I didn't know anything about church fathers. Didn't know anything about the early church. Didn't know anything about any of those things. And that shocked me. Mm-hmm. How could you not want to know how Christianity has been lived for these last 2,000 years? Because when you look at how Christianity is lived, that tells you how the Bible's meant to be interpreted. Like, if you will, tradition is the living witness to living scripture. Right. And I'm not talking about just like teaching tradition, but also like the lived reality of Christianity. Right. So you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. and because he, he put it in an interesting way. So he, he knew that this stuff would be difficult for his listeners. And I found it very, the way he persuaded in his conversation, in his preaching was really good. Because he mm-hmm. talked about how, hey, if, you know, so-and-so, the, the youth pastor, whoever he mentioned, and this other guy, this other guy all have the same opinion on scripture, well, that's something I need to consider. You know, that's mm-hmm. something I have to take seriously because these are people I respect, who are holy, who I know. And so I may not agree with them, but I have to take what they say seriously. Mm-hmm. So, of course, these early Christians, these first Christians, maybe we don't take every little thing they say, but right. if they're all saying something, that's right. something we need to consider. Right. And he was being very gentle, but I, but I thought it was, it was funny he was, how gentle he was being. But like, yeah, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. So this is, um, I kind of want to just talk, let's talk then a little bit about early Christianity and its importance. Because here's the other thing, like these church fathers, for example, mm-hmm. they were the authoritative interpreters of scripture all the way up until the Middle Ages. Like like if you read Thomas, he's quoting Augustine and Origen and Chrysostom and stuff like this. Uh, the, these church fathers were essential to every Christian and under, because I guess there's two points that play with this, right? On the one hand, it's true. Yes. Tradition develops and deepens. Okay. So as the church looks today is not going to ever be the same as she looks 2000 years ago. We're not talking about like going to the fathers and then kind of bringing back the purity of the early church. Um, if that's, that's historically, um, dishonest, but rather it's about saying, these guys can, but we also need to be purified by that to see how are we interpreting the scriptures and the life of the church and the revelation of Christ according to the mind of of Christ himself. These people are the closest contact with this. We have letters from Polycarp and, and St. Justin Martyr and St. Ignatius of Antioch. These are people of the first two centuries of Christianity, right? We have these letters of them and they tell us something. And Or we have the Didache, right, which is the teaching of the 12 apostles, which tells us distinctly about communion and stuff like this. So I think it's important, I guess, what I want to propose is um, if you're ever talking to a Protestant or you're a Protestant listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you to read the Church Fathers, and especially like the really early guys. So Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp. Am I missing anyone? Those are, that's a good start. Those, those are your good three, right? Um, Saint Justin, And I'd throw in St. Justin Martyr. He is a pagan convert to Christianity and he is one of the most definitive defenders of the teaching on the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is what does the early church look like for us? And I want to say that there are there's two key elements to Christianity. This is actually something that all the way up to today, if you ever read like uh, from the year 2000, Dominus Jesus, which is um, the Congregation for Doctrine of Faith's letter on Christ and the Church. They say that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, but the, that it has these two identifying markers to make it a church. It's 
got apostolic succession and it's got the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. You need those things to be a church properly so-called. If you don't have them, you're not a church because to be a church means that you're surrounded by a bishop who is the unifying principle of the diocese and you're unified by communion itself. Communion makes the church, right? There's actually something John Paul II says in his last encyclical on the Eucharist. The church, the Eucharist is the unifying bond of the church. By all, That's why we call it communion. To say, I'm in communion with you, right? Mm-hmm. And with Christ and the whole church. So, and if you look at, at these people, like, uh, is it, I want to say it was Paul, no, it was Ignatius who talks about the bishop. Yes. As, yeah. mm-hmm. Right? Who talks about the bishop as kind of like God the Father. So you've turned off all of our Protestant listeners now. Oh, why? Okay, so like, this is a difficult thing, I think, even for Catholics yeah. to hear today. Yeah. Right? So this is a bishop saying you should look at your bishop as representing God the Father. Yeah. That's a tough thing to swallow because we know that people tend to be bad tend to do bad things, tend to not be perfect. Um, but the point he, he's making here is you've got to understand the, the lens with which early Christianity saw the world. And this mm-hmm. is something we talk about all the time, that God always is mediated to us. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean he's far from us. In fact, it actually means he's very, very, very close. So God chooses these apostles to lead his church. And I think it, the helpful, another helpful lens to look at this, and this explains a lot of Catholic theology, mm-hmm. if you look at it through the lens of family, it's not about documents, it's not about um, lining things up nice and orderly. If you understand the church as family, it makes a lot of things make more sense. Mm-hmm. I think it makes the saints make way more sense. Like these are our mm-hmm. brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And of course right. they love us and help us now in heaven, right? Right. Because yeah. why wouldn't God let them? That's right. you know, a beautiful thing. Or um, as the, the apostle, or like how does the faith get transmitted? How do you find out who you are? You find out through your family when you're growing up. And let's just take a healthy family as an example. When you're growing up, you find out from your mom, from your dad, from your siblings, who you are, what you're worth, what are the mm-hmm. values of your family? And that's mm-hmm. usually taught just by being in the family. Yes, they mm-hmm. have conversations with you. Yes, of mm-hmm. course, they, in a sense, they preach to you. But it's more about this lived experience in the right. culture of the family. And yeah. you understand the church like that, the idea of tradition being the way in which the teaching of Christ is passed down mm-hmm. authentically makes so much more sense. Right. And, and to add to this, too, like just to go maybe even back a bit further, when we talk about Scripture, right, Paul talks very emphatically emphatically about the church being the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're we're in this relation we are unified this way, right? And and how do you become the body of Christ by receiving his body? Now there's actually one little thing in the um in the video by F- Francis that I I cringed a little bit at and he said that now I'm being Trying to be theologically precise here, folks, so please don't freak out when I say this. He says, you know, early Christians, they believed that it was his literal body and blood. I know what he's trying to say there. It's his real presence, okay? But there actually has to be a little nuance to that. We talk about the Eucharist as the sacramental presence of Christ, right? It's a sacramental presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He is really there, really and truly. The reason you don't want to use the word literal is then it means, oh, I'm actually like gnawing on his flesh. Or like taking a bite of his pinky toe, of his glorified pinky toe. Exactly. So (laughs) you're you're receiving the whole of Christ. Yes. You're receiving receiving the whole Christ. And that's made presence in a sacramental way so that we can mystically unify ourselves with Christ. But it's not, it's the, the Eucharist is not the literal, but it's the real. Right. I think and the problem, the yeah, the problem with this is that uh, a lot of times our language is imprecise, and we use mm-hmm. the word literally in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And so when people are saying it's literally the body and blood, I know what you're trying to say, and like that yeah. sentiment is good. And a lot of times I won't correct it because I feel like that nuance might just end up being confusing and unhelpful. Um, but it is important to know that you're not like munching on the toenails of our glorified Lord. You are receiving Him 
completely. Yeah. yeah. And that's just a better way to say it. Exactly. And I think because what happens, um, I think what happens is if you can present it this way, it actually becomes easier for a Protestant to hear. Because it. The one thing I found interesting is a lot of Protestants actually have some teaching on communion that talks about some sort of presence. And a lot of Protestants believe that they believe in the real presence. Right. And but maybe they the actually even do. Yeah. But here's the thing. You can't have the presence without someone to institute it. Yeah. So that's the thing. That's one thing that I saw in some of the comments online stuff. It's like, yeah, so what? A lot of Protestants believe in the real presence. It's like, okay, good. You believe that that is truly Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now you have to ask yourself, how does that happen? Right. And what are the ramifications of that? And who has the power to do that? Right. Right. And, so, not ju- and, yeah. and just to add to that, what's the guarantee that you know that you have been instituted according to the way Christ intended it to from the beginning? Right. Right. And this is where the bishop, this is why the church says you need the two things, the sacraments and the bishop. The bishop is the guarantee that from the apostles to today, every bishop is in that proper line of succession. And we know that there is no interruption to these lines. Right. right. That's, that's a huge thing. That's, this is a huge principle in the church is like tying ourselves back to Christ through the apostles. Mm-hmm. And this, this is similar but analogous. Some people ask me, uh, why can only a priest or a deacon proclaim the gospel? So in the Catholic Mass, you can have any mm-hmm. you know, baptized Christian, usually Catholic, can read mm-hmm. uh, the readings. Um, but the gospel, we kind of set everything else aside. We've got the music for the Alleluia. So you can have candles and incense with it. We're holding up the book of the gospels. And only the priest or the deacon, why? Because ask yourself, how do you know that what he's reading is the book of the gospels? How do you know that's from Matthew? Because mm-hmm. the man reading it was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who goes back to Jesus Christ. It's, yeah. it's we, we live in such a, like a documentary like culture where things need to be written down to be official. Mm-hmm. But in the Catholic mind, it's like, no, I got this from my father who got this from his father. And that's how right. we know it's true. Which it's is how mindset. tradition has always been passed down, even from, from in Jewish times. And mm-hmm. that's the other thing. When we talk about tradition, we're not talking about things that we've made up. There's a distinction to make between what we, some people like to popularly say like big T tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is what Jesus taught and who he is and small T traditions. Right, which is things that the church maybe sometimes because of her like like celibacy is actually a small t tradition. Yes. Now it's a good and it actually has a very important part to play, but it's not the it's not dogma of the church. Right, right? it's never going to be a dogma of the church because we literally have married priests as well. Right, so there's a, that distinction. But the, the big t tradition is stuff to say. No, this is stuff that Jesus either taught or is implied what he taught from the beginning. Right, right. And so the bishop is the guarantee of this, because here's the thing, if we don't have a structure that Christ has put in place that guarantees the faithful handing on of the deposit of faith, then human humankind is so wrapped up in, its, in itself that it can easily manipulate and distort this. Because the thing is, the bishop is, act, the other thing is, bishops aren't there in the term of worldly power, even though that's been exercised by bishops in the past. It's not about worldly power. It's actually about Christian power, which is there to serve and to hand on what it has received from the beginning. And the church has constantly, without interruption, handed on the same thing from the beginning, which is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, risen from the dead, that he, be, um, that he became incarnate for us to save us from our sins, and that he has established a church to inaugurate the beginning of the kingdom through baptism and then the sacramental life which draws us into God's very life. So the next thing with all this too is then, okay, not only this, and it's good, and that's actually one thing I've always really appreciated about Christians, and actually they've really challenged me with this this year. I'm trying to read scripture more. Yeah, absolutely. Because they really know their scripture. Like, listen to Francis Chan, like, man, this guy knows scripture. It's his heart. It's his everything. But I think we have to ask ourselves some really legitimate questions. Where did the Bible come from? Mm-hmm. Right? And when you look at evidence, I mean, the Gospels themselves were not finalized until the end of the first century with John's Gospel. Some of Paul's letters predate Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Or even if you look at Paul's letters, when he's talking to people, it's like, oh, you guys already know the Gospel because so-and-so taught you. Exactly. So-and-so gave you the Gospel, and it wasn't his letter. 
it was his teaching. Yeah. Like that's what we mean by how tradition is um, a source of divine revelation. Yeah, exactly. So this is the scriptures had to be put together by someone. Well, who was that? Right. And, and it wasn't the book that we have today known as the Bible wasn't really put together until the fourth century. So what were the Christians leaning on for those first 300 years? Yes, the letters uh, and the Gospels were multiplied. They were used, but they weren't put together. Right. It's a lot so, of you pulling from the uh, Old Testament. A lot of times yeah. when they're referring to Scripture, yeah. they're referring in their minds to the Old Testament. They didn't yeah. yet see their letters as Scripture. Right. Um, and it's the teaching of the apostles because right. they were taught by Christ. And and this is the other thing. It's the teaching of the like the, the disciples devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Mm which is something that is greater than what we have just in scripture. Not every apostle wrote a letter and yet they were devoted to their teaching. Right. So that is already implying in scripture that there was something more than what we just have written down. It's not like when they, it says they applied themselves to the teaching of the apostles, that they had all the teachings written down for them. They didn't, they weren't a documentary culture. They were an oral culture primarily. And so they would, it was according to what they heard from them. And then they pass this on. The church has passed this on for 2,000 years. So I think it's important to ask ourselves, we all believe in Jesus Christ, and this is a good thing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and we believe that he is the first, he is the second person of, of the Blessed Trinity, mm-hmm. Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that he died and rose again. Mm-hmm. The question then becomes, if did Jesus establish a church? And it's very clear from Scripture that yes, he did. Now the question becomes, what does that church look like? And we ha- I think the only honest answer is, what did it look like at the beginning? What was the essential structure that was there? And where do I find that today? Because it's not just with the bishops and with communion, but very early on, we have very strong testimony from the early church fathers about the importance of the primacy of Rome. That Rome is a place where... where the communion of the church is guaranteed, right? That's why we call the Bishop of Rome the principle of unity of the church. He's we, the father and, of the yeah. fathers, right? And it's because that's where Peter died. Exactly. And, and that's where Paul and died. And Paul died, yeah. Both yeah. of them together, right? It's, 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 it's why it's a solemnity in, in the Roman church, so the, their, their, their feast day, and they're celebrated together. So we have to honestly look at history because God uses history. God uses the events of history to make himself known to us. And we can't just look only to scripture all the time to see how God reveals himself. Yes, scripture has an incredibly important place in this. Yes, it reveals God to us. But Jesus primarily actually revealed himself in history. He took on a human body. He spoke, you know, everything that's written down in the scriptures were coming from the personal experience of the apostles and the disciples. There was a tradition that existed prior to scripture. We have to take seriously this history then. And God binds himself in a way to this history. Not to become himself per se, that's not that's process theology, but rather that we are historical people and history is the means by which God makes himself known. And God works through his church. So what does that church look like at the beginning? What were its core principles and where are those principles found today because with Newman he has that great phrase to del- to immerse yourself into history is to cease to be Protestant because you realize that nothing in the history points to anything but Catholicism with with Peter at the center with an Episcopal structure and with his belief in, in the sacraments Yes, faith saves, but remember that is actually also balanced out by something St. Peter says in his letter, it is by baptism that we are saved. The sacramental structure, even when you read, like when you read the, the, the scriptures, you start to see the sacramental life of participation. In baptism in Romans 6, Paul talks about being immersed in the waters as being immersed in the death of Jesus. This is not a symbol for him. This is a real reality. We are really participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what's really happening. Yep. 
do you not know that when you are receiving the body of the Lord, like, like that is it's the body of when you receive the bread, it's the body of Christ. That receive the wine is the blood of Christ. Paul does not mean this in a symbolic way. Over and over again, even in Scripture, we already see this sacramental structure at play. And I kind of want to conclude with this because this is—I think this was actually one of the most in, intoxicating elements of Francis Chan's uh, sermon. The way he understood that the like in a way he was talking about the mass that we are rejoicing always because not just at the mass but always as christians in mm-hmm. the heavenly rejoicing around the throne of god we are always there this participatory nature of our faith unifies heaven and earth so that when we die death is not the last word anymore he sees it rightly death doesn't separate us because christ conquers death we are all in christ this is the participatory this is the participatory nature of our faith. This is what lives in scripture. This is what was lived on early on in the in the church and this is what the Catholic Church offers today. And so I almost was want to cry out, come home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the fullness of faith. I, okay, a little addendum. I got a little bit of heat cuz I was posting about this on Twitter the other day about oh, you know, um, it's not the that's offensive to Protestants to say Catholicism is the fullness of faith. But it is. <laughs> it would be. This is. Have I told you the pizza analogy? No. It's I don't the think dumbest so. way I explain this. Why this isn't offensive. I'm just going to do it now. I don't care if we're going late on the podcast. Yeah. Imagine there's a town and there's only one pizza shop in that town. Right. Now, the longing of every human heart is for pizza, correct? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Except for pineapple pizza. Exactly. For regular pizza. Yeah. That is called heresy. <laughs> right, right, right. Good, good, good. See, the analogy yes, works on yes, so many yes, levels. Okay. Yes, yes. Would you say it'd be a loving thing to say, you know what? There's a lot of roads in this town. Go go ahead and go find your own pizza. That's not a loving thing to say. No. There's one road that leads to the pizza store, and you're a jerk if you don't tell them that's the road that goes to pizza. Mm-hmm. They might be like, oh, there's calzones over here, though. Okay, it's close, but it's not pizza. And what you really want is pizza. Yeah. So I don't I I get like yeah we're saying that this is the one true church but that's something that needs to be it can be said as an aggressive sort of thing but it should be said with like this is your home this is this your is home. where Christ draws you to and it's not trying to detract yes there's faith at work in you already yeah in these other churches because mm-hmm. you've been baptized baptism is the gateway to faith remember this you've been baptized into Christ but you're you're not receiving the fullness of grace that comes through the life of the sacraments and unity and, and communion with Christ and his church. This is the whole point. It's like it, it, to maybe take the pizza analogy again. It's like saying <laughs> you've got, you got the greatest pizza place on earth and then you've got 30,000 other pizza places, but with some degrees of better pizza than others. You got some that's trashy pizza. You got some, <laughs> uh, you got, you got your chain pizzas like pizza hut and, and Domino's. You got some nicer ones, and then you got the pizza of heaven, right? <laughs> yeah. And why wouldn't you want the best pizza? Why wouldn't you want the best access to grace? We don't earn our salvation. Catholics do not believe this. But the sacrament... And I want to kind of maybe... Okay, this will be my last little thing because yeah. we're running over time. Because the temptation is to do all the Catholic apologetics in a half hour, and that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, but the Catholic view of grace is not just that it justifies, it sanctifies, okay? There's a lot of debates, obviously, with Protestants around justification because of the fear that if if there's any talk about uh, works and cooperation with grace that we're earning our salvation. And I don't want to necessarily hit on that. But let's just say grace only justifies, that its whole point and purpose is to justify us. I have, because I've made an act of faith in Christ, I've given my life over to him, I am now kind of quote-unquote covered in his blood. And regardless of what happens to me going forward, I'm justified by him. Because I'm always covered in his blood. This is now, granted, this is one view of grace. There's a, a myriad of views out there. I've always, and I, I say this honestly, if you're a Protestant listening to this, I say this honestly, I've always struggled with this view of grace because I've seen it as quite weak. Why wouldn't grace want to transform? 
and heal the whole person and bring them to be more and more like Christ. This is why we have the sacraments. We receive Christ to become more and more like him, to participate in him more and more. Why wouldn't we want that? And it's something that the church offers through the life of the sacraments and through communion with her. That not only am I justified in Christ, but I'm being sanctified as well so that I can actually grow in my intimacy with Jesus Christ so that I can actually change and root out the sins that are still rooted there so I can come to know and be like him in every way possible. I've never understood how we can't want that. Well, let's let's end with the words from Scripture, Father Harrison. Sure. From John 17, uh, 20 yes. and 21. Great. Great. I prayed not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, you can uh, find us. Please leave a review on Stitch, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review. It helps us. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies, too, because Jesus said you must love your enemies. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash speaking, where the money goes to paying for producer Nick and for Riley for doing admin assistant stuff for us and for ordering those things like those stickers, which we finally got in the mail. And they're out there finally, I hope. Everyone got the one that they were supposed to. Um, and then anything extra that's left over, we give as a donation to the Missionaries of Charity. You can find me on Twitter at FR Harrison. And can, I guess. You can find me in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. <laughs> you, can find the twi- you can find the podcast at ClericalPod on Twitter. You can email us, clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. God bless. Peace.